and welcome to episode number 216 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is Sherry Thomas. We are going to talk about her new historical mystery series, which features a gender-bent Sherlock Holmes. If you are driving right now, please maintain control of the vehicle. We also talk about her keynote address at RWA in 2016. We talk about languages, learning English by reading romances, and writing in several genres. And of course, we talk about what Sherry is reading and recommending. Plus, we are going to learn a word that will be tremendously useful for everyone on Earth. We talk a little bit about her speech that she gave at RWA. And if you're thinking, I really want to hear this or watch it, I will have links in the podcast entry to both the video and the audio if you're an RWA member for the audio part at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. That is also the link for all of the books and movies and things we talk about during this episode as well. So again, if you're driving and you're thinking, but, but, but I want to write that down, do not worry. All of the books we talk about will be in the podcast entry, also known as the show notes, but I still call it the podcast entry because once a blogger, always a blogger. The podcast transcript this month is sponsored by Kensington, publishers of Highland Chieftain by Hannah Howell. New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Hannah Howell delivers a dazzling new entry into her epic, sweeping, medieval Murray family saga that will delight her longtime fans and readers craving strong, protective Scottish warriors and feisty leading ladies in a way that only Howell can deliver. With her signature sweeping prose and unforgettable characters, you can let Hannah Howell whisk you away to the castle-dotted hills and deep lochs, which is exactly where Bethock Matheson finds Sir Callum Macmillan on the verge of drowning. So she does what every steadfast lass would do and rescues him. Give in to your kilty pleasure this fall and warm up under your favorite tartan blanket with Highland Chieftain. The Scottish Highlands are beckoning you. Highland Chieftain by Hannah Howell is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is and where you can buy it. And if you're thinking, I really like iBooks and I really like the iBook store, we have our own page. It's so cool. iTunes.com slash DBSA is where you can find recent episodes and links to the books that we talk about should you be an iBook store customer, which I imagine many of you are because I know there is some things that Apple has and brand loyalty is like top five. So many of you have sponsored our Patreon campaign recently, and every time I get a new notification of someone having made a pledge, I really do do a pretty embarrassing dance of joy, so thank you for that. My cats are extremely entertained. If you are curious or you'd like to help support the show, you can make a pledge of as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash smartbitches, and stay tuned at the end of the episode. I have compliments, and they're so fun. Your support means a lot. Thank you so much for having a look at the page, for supporting the show, and for tuning in and listening every week. That is just incredible to me. I am super excited about this interview, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And now, without any further delay, on with the podcast. Uh, okay, I am Sherry Thomas, and uh, I write... Uh, many different things. I uh, started in historical romance, uh, and then I added uh, young adult fantasy. Um, and now I am moving into historical mystery with uh, the first book in the Lady Sherlock series coming out um, that features a gender-bending female Sherlock Holmes. Uh, so Sherlock Holmes using Sherlock Holmes as her nom de guerre as one lady online pointed out. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. You, so you've moved from writing historicals. I haven't moved. I always like to emphasize I haven't moved. You have, I have you've added, expanded. I have added, yes. You've expanded your literary horizons to include historical and YA fantasy and now historical mystery. Yes. Okay, A, that's awesome. B, is there any romance in the historical mystery? There will be a long arc romance. Oh, I'm so you can't see would, me, would, but I'm rubbing my hands together. Right it now. would not be. It would not be done in one book. So, oh darn, that's just that's just completely acceptable. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited to hear that. So, can you tell me about the Lady Sherlock series? Is is it a 
spinoff or or a or a parallel of existing stories, or is it a whole new universe? It's a it's a reimagining. It's a reimagining. So um, so I am a big fan of the um, of the Mary Russell uh, Sherlock Holmes books by um, Laurie King, and uh, and when the BBC Sherlock came out. I was like, this is so cool. They've, you know, completely put a new spin to it. And then I thought to myself, I wonder how it would be if Sherlock was a woman. Because they have done various kind of updates over the years, right? So uh, Sherlock is now modern. And on CBS, you have a modern Sherlock with a female Watson. Yes. But then I asked myself, and and, and with uh, Laurie King gave Sherlock a um, a partner, a female partner who's just as smart and uh, uh, wacky as himself. Um, but and, and I always wondered, has has anyone ever, you know, just really went ahead and gender bent Sherlock Holmes? And I look around, I was like, actually, there hasn't been. I was surprised. I was like, it would seem kind of like something. that would be a thing that someone would do. Yeah, yeah. You think there were so many, so many uh, Sherlock adaptations. And I was like, okay, well then uh, I'll do it. <laughs> well, if no one's done it, I mean, why not, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I so I pitched the uh, idea to my publisher, and they were at first a little bit confused. They thought they thought it would be a romance. I think even when I turned in my first draft, they were like, "Where is the?" <laughs> <laughs> there is not enough kissing while they solve crime. What's happening? I so it's like, uh. No, we actually sold you a um, mystery series with romantic elements, not the other way around. <laughs> oh dear! But now they are now they are completely on board. Yeah. So this is a study in Scarlet Women. A study in Scarlet Women, and if you are any kind of Sherlock aficionado, you know that the first Sherlock book is a study in Scarlet. Very, yes. very, very savvy. You have a terrific cover. I do like that cover a wow, lot. Wow, is it gorgeous. And and the thing is that focal point that that door opening an inch with the light coming through. Mm -hmm. That actually wasn't there in the initial drafts. In the initial drafts it was just this woman standing there and we were all like something's missing. So none of us being graphic design experts were all kind of like can her dress be of a different color? Can um, you know? <laughs> can she be uh, taller? Yeah, yeah. Can can she be holding something in her hands? We, we, we were just like, I mean, I think we wanted something dynamic, but we wouldn't know how to get it if you like hung us upside down. Um, <laughs> but this is like leave it to the experts. They went back and they figured out how to do it. They opened the door and voila! It just suddenly had all the visual interest it needs for a cover. And it's, it's got these sort of um, play of light and darkness where everything draws your eye to her and what she's doing. Right. So you right. want to, like, immediately you see the cover and you're like, oh, well, I wish to follow her. That could be creepy or interesting. Let's go see. Right, right. And, and then I think it's, it's a very, um, it's a figurative uh, cover in yes. the sense that you are following her into the unknown, yes. which is totally correct. Yeah. Because literally in the book, she doesn't really open any weird doors. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I think even even among romance fans, we are used to the cover having nothing to do with the cover with the, with the content yes. of the book. So at least at least this has a good amount to do with the content. Right, this, right. It's at yes. least related or in the same like ballpark state right, area. Right, and and she does love a big dress. So well, who doesn't love a big dress? <laughs> so was it a challenge to shift to writing a mystery? Or was that something that you've always liked doing? I, um, ever since I read the first uh, Mary Russell uh, Sherlock Holmes book, I've always like, oh, I would love to write something like that. But I didn't know whether I could because it, because all these Sherlocky bits, mm -hmm. uh, namely Sherlock takes one look at a person and can tell you everything, including what they had for breakfast yesterday. Um, that sort of thing is really, really fun to read, but really, really difficult to write. Yes, because you have to give just enough information to keep the reader going. Right. And, but not and, make and, it too obvious what's happening. Exactly. And uh, so, and then you have to go like, oh, wow, she noticed all these awesome. And, uh, and then you'll go in there going like, wait, what exactly can you tell from a person just by looking at them? Between you and me, I can tell nothing. 
Oh, absolutely. Right. So, um, so it's all, yeah. So it's all those parts of the book are the slowest going. Um, and another part is that um, whether I can do a proper plot because romance is character driven. Right. And mystery, although these days mysteries are more character driven than they, uh, they ever were, you still need a very important central plot line. Um, but I felt much more confident actually after I finished book two of uh, my young adult trilogy, uh, because book two is actually from beginning to end a mystery, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, the girl wakes up in the desert and she's going like, uh-oh. What the hell? What uh-oh. happened to me? Why bad. am I here? Why can't I remember anything? Yeah. And the, then the whole whole rest of the story is to find out, you know, how how it happened. And uh, I thought uh, everybody who read that book said, oh, my God, there's a twist I never saw coming. So I thought, uh, hmm, maybe I could do this. And that was when um, I said, let's go ahead. Uh, I w- tell Berkeley I want to sell these three books uh, and uh, see if they'll bite. So, yeah. That's fantastic. So yeah, so I, 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 I really, really understand readers when they don't want their authors to move on. I really do, because I am that reader. <laughs> you know, I'll be like, yes, I like you, and I like it when you write these books, and I don't know what the heck you're doing with these other books. <laughs> <laughs> why, why, is, why is her dress... Why is her dress closed? There's no buttons open on the back. We, she's not half naked. I don't understand. I know, and she's not draped over a dude. No, what, and she's not lounging on a yeah. couch like she's about to get a pelvic exam. And I, the know, I like, know. What's happening and, and, here? And, and, and the dress is not uh, lifted up to like the very top of her thigh. And uh, so, uh, so I am that reader. Mm-hmm. But as as a writer, you do want to do something that excites you. And I think there are two kind of writers. One who write the same archetypal story. That's just what they do. Mm-hmm. That's the story that speaks to them the most. Right. They, I mean, it's just what they love to do, is what right. their instinct tells them to do, and it's what their readers want to read. Right, And I think that is, like, awesome. And I think there's another type of writer who couldn't write the same story if you gave them, you know, well, I don't know. I mean... I'm cheap. So if you gave me enough money, maybe I could. <laughs> but it's just, it's just naturally difficult for, I think, the rest of us. I'll be like, I've already done that before. I don't mm-hmm. want to repeat myself. Um, so, yeah. So I totally sympathize with readers who are like, why can't you just write more historical romance? And I want to. I want to. I just, like, just, I just haven't come across any uh, plot that excited me, that, you know, the, any conflict that excited me for a while. So... So maybe doing more of these other uh, plot-driven stuff after a while, maybe I'll go, oh, I would love to write a book where people do nothing but sit around in a drawing room and talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing about developing a romance over several books is that you get an enormously large amount of space in which to build the connection between the characters, and you can make it happen over several minute, tiny moments that carry a lot more weight because they're so scarce. Yes, I actually uh, enjoy that. And I am the kind of reader who, you know, when I read a book with romantic element in it, I am always like waiting for the romantic element. Yes. Yes. So, uh, so and, and the thing is, when done well, you, you're kind of satisfied too. It, it's, oh, it's, yes. not like, it's not like you're like, Oh, they only went, you know, to second base in this book. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's, it's there's only so one boob, just one, not even both. <laughs> <laughs> that gynecological exam is never coming, is it? No, you know? no, he's never gonna get to home base. They're they're just gonna sit on second forever. <laughs> but I, see, I love one of my favorite things in romance and in in other genres is I love a very slow burn because. In the end, that romance becomes character driven. So if the the plot over several books is them doing other things and there are these tiny little moments of emotional connection, eventually the moments that continue past the first few where they have to take a moment to acknowledge whatever's happening, 
that becomes very character driven in addition to the plot. So it's like weaving in a really, really powerful emotional thread over several books. And when it's done well, it's delicious because then you go back and you read like those tiny moments and suddenly it's like, whoa. I know, I know. I think, uh, uh, I think we talked about it when we were doing the, um, the 100 uh, top romance of all time mm -hmm. uh, gig for NPR. Yes. Uh, the uh, Harriet Vane and uh, Lord Peter, my God, his name is escaping me. Lord Peter Whimsey? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the Dorothy Sayer books. Uh, yeah, those are delicious, just absolutely delicious. Like, oh, yeah. In, in the little bits that they get together, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's another romance series that grabbed a lot of romance readers um, by Julia Spencer Fleming which started with uh, In a Bleak Midwinter, where the, where the... Right, she, she is a, uh, she is a, uh, the new deacon? What, what is yeah, she? Yeah, she's the, the new uh, rector of the Episcopal ah, Church, and he's the right. chief of police, and he's older than she is. And they both served in the army, but in completely different times. He's married. She, they are trying very hard not to acknowledge their attraction to each other. But, you know, as, as you do in a, in a mystery series, you get together and you solve crime, because right. that's why you're in the book. So over time, they have to navigate this attraction that they absolutely do not wish to deal with, and they don't want to feel it, and they don't want to acknowledge it, and they know they can't. And so it's like super, super angsty by the time things start to happen. And like, you know, book nine, book 10, you've, you've <laughs> earned it. You've earned all that angst. It, it, it's like, it's like, it's like, it turns us all into shippers. Yes, thank you. Know, you. Even, even, when we, even when we didn't start as shippers, it no. turns you into shippers. It's That's a what very a, a big proper, boat you're building proper there, Proper long arc, slow burning romance does. Yes. So, yes. You are building an enormous arc, enormous boat for your, for your shipping with your series, <laughs> I suppose. So I wanted to ask you about your speech at RWA this year. Yes. So it was reprinted in the Romance Writers Report, which is for um, RWA members. And I don't right. think I can link to it outside. So if someone who's listening isn't a member of RWA, didn't hear it or didn't get to read it, could you give like a, a micro version of your speech? Because it was a really powerful, um, it's a really powerful message about how romance had an enormous effect on your life. Right. And uh, um I think it's the audio is available for free from RGBA. Yes, excellent. So if anybody, so if anybody's already, you know, listening to this, obviously you can access. A you can access audio stuff. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure where they have it, but I'll uh, find I think it. Uh, I will find so, it and link to it. Yeah, go to RGBA, and I'm sure because I several times I have uh, retweeted uh, messages about the, them being free. Um, they are on YouTube also. They are on RWA's YouTube channel, but who has time to sit down and watch, right? Um, you are on the treadmill, you're walking your dog right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, um, that's the thing. It, it kind of does not become obvious uh, until you look back yes. to see what's the impact something had on your life. So my, um, my main... Uh, and and most people's uh, uh, most people's speech at RWA is at least somewhat uh, autobiographical. You gotta you know tell people a bit about yourself and uh, how romance came into your life and um, and for me it kind of like almost literally uh, saved me in a sense because I had so so it played two very important roles in my life. One, I learned English reading a lot of romance and a lot of science fiction. But I always feel like I should apologize when you say that. Like, I'm really, really sorry that that was your introduction because you must have the most florid purple vocabulary when you know. I it. do. <laughs> when, I, when I was, you know, when I was a young woman, like not a teenager, <clears throat> but when I was like, say, 18 or 21, I had the vocabulary of a Victorian old lady. Okay? <laughs> like, I did not know such words as pee and poop until I had my kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and I was looking at what's in my son's diaper and asked myself, asking my husband, what do you call that? And he says, <laughs> and, and, and he says, caca, you know, so. Like, well, okay, that's one like, word. I've never heard that before, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. And for people who don't know, I was not born in the United States uh, or any Western country. I, I was born in China, born and brought up in China, and I didn't come to the States until I was 13. Um, 
that was when uh, my mother was uh, a grad student here in the in the states then and uh, i i was living with her parents uh, my grandparents uh, while she was studying here and my grandmother passed away so my mother brought me and my grandfather here to live with her so she could take care of us um, and that's how i came to the united states uh, all of a sudden kind of like uh, uh, without much psychological preparation on my part. And I found it a really magnificent, but really bizarre place. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, and I was always a reader. And I found American teenagers terribly strange. So <laughs> I, I think I read even more after I came to the States. I think most people, including other teenagers, find American teenagers very strange. But oh, I cannot I imagine the... That's what the, I later realized. Yes. yes. But yes. the depth of the cultural differences must have been completely jarring. It was, it was like completely disorienting. It was actually less jarring to read historical romances. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at least these people make sense. They're consistent. Yeah. So, and I was like, uh, uh, you know, you're at that age when you are... Uh, and I came from kind of a repressive, uh, sexually repressive culture. So very little contact with the, um, I mean, you sit next to the opposite sex your whole life, but there's actual, very little actual contact. It's always like girls play with girls, guys play with guys and, and kind of things like that. Um, so, and I basically had no knowledge of sex whatsoever. And to come here and see these like, clinch covers oh like yes every, they every were... supermarket you went to and, and this was the late 80s i was gonna know, say history. they were super clinchy back then yeah yeah and and it was still like the height of the historical i mean maybe not the height but we were still somewhere in the historical romance boom and um all these uh you know there were there were lots of heaving bosoms <laughs> uh, yes there were <laughs> to, quote, to quote the title of your book <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 that, that's the title of your book, right? Yes, Beyond Heaving Bosoms. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I was like really, really super curious. And I, you know, nothing spurs you to read uh, like sexual curiosity. I'm going to oh, tell you, like, stay yes. straight. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I used, used to uh, read those uh, big old heavy um uh, you know, 70s, 80s historical romance with a, with a dictionary in hand. And, um, and yes. That's how and you learned English. That's partly, but a very important part of how I learned English. I did, I did have to go through this uh, process with English as second language where they, uh, they ask you to read little booklets that's about somebody's duck or your dog, your walk in the park and things like that. And I felt deeply insulted to be reading things like that. Oh, of um, course, because they're, they're, they're completely not yeah, meant for teaching. They're for two-year-olds. Two yes. Yeah. And, uh, did, and you I ever, was... did you ever run, did you ever run into words where they weren't in the dictionary and you were like, well, now what do I do? It was a pretty big dictionary. That I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, All of not, the euphemisms were in this one. Not huge in size because Chinese is much smaller. Uh, we, we print anything; it like tends to take up much less room. Yeah. Uh, but it was my grandmother's biggest dictionary, and I brought it. And if my medium-sized dictionary that I carried to school didn't have it, I take out the big one. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, between the two of them, um, I actually like don't remember there must have been there must have been but i don't remember like anything like really really that the dictionary couldn't get to although sometimes the dictionary would define it and i still wouldn't know what it was <laughs> i imagine there were some very very florid terms where you were like okay still this doesn't make any sense <laughs> right and uh and uh, but overall it was it was a, it was a pretty good and pretty speedy way to uh learn english to read books and to read books you really want to read because doggone it I mean those those romances were like crack they were oh, like oh they there are some early books in from that era that like I pick them up and I I that's it three hours are gone yeah although uh, my apologies to uh, Rosemary Rogers uh is, is, she, is she still around I don't know but I don't think she listens so I think you're okay. oh yeah yeah but you know my apologies uh I'm not sure whether I can read her books now. No. Like being being in my early 40s instead of, you know, 14. Uh, just because, you know, I've grown up. 
it's a robot. whole yeah it's a whole yeah. other and, perspective and, and it's it's like and romance has become a lot more sophisticated uh yeah but but my goodness uh it, it was like crack to me to my teenage so yeah well i will i just actually need to tell you that rosemary rogers is still alive she is 83 okay you have had the most profound influence on my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know that feeling it's it's weird how we picking up romances and developing a seriously passionate habit for reading them changes a lot of things in your life. It does. It does. I mean, most primarily, it gives you a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, yes, it does, and it's it's all very affirmative. Like, oh yes, your sexual curiosity totally normal and a good thing. Here, let us answer your sexual curiosity with images of waves cresting. That'll confuse you, and you'll keep reading. <laughs> yes, but you know those waves cresting was good stuff. Oh yeah, there were waves. Oh, yeah. It was all good. It, it wipes out. It it wipes out all the asshole behavior that had come before. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so I have a question for you. As I'm totally nosy, which is why I have a podcast. You speak two languages. Is it two or three? I speak. Um, I speak bus stop French. How about let's put it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I speak about that level of French. I can buy earrings and order breakfast yeah. in French, but that's about it. I, I actually spent a year in France, so it's probably a little better than uh, bus stop French, but right now it's been 20 years, so yeah. yeah. So when you're writing, do you think in English or do you think in another language? I haven't thought in anything except English for a long time. I, I, I can think in Chinese, but normally, normally I think in English, yeah. I noticed when I traveled, because I, I was an exchange student to Spain when I was pretty young, when I was 15. And then again, when I was 20 and um, the first time I went, I had a, a slightly similar experience to you. I moved in with a family where there was supposed to be an English speaker, but Spain had a really high unemployment rate at that time. And the English speaker got a job as a professional basketball player. So understand, <laughs> he was not home. And I moved in with my ninth grade Spanish into a home full of people who spoke no English. And I went to a Spanish Catholic high school and I failed all my classes except English. I got a really good grade in the English class because like you said, they're like, and here is your duck that you're taking for a walk. And I'm like, are you serious? This is how, and it was British English too. So I was like, you're not even spelling things right. What is this? But anyway, through total confusion and immersion, I came out pretty fluent. And I've noticed that if I was, if I'm in Spain or if I'm surrounded by Spanish language, I start to think in Spanish but I have to hear it and be surrounded by it before that part of my brain sort of wakes up. It's almost like I, two separate parts of my brain. I speak much better Chinese after three days in China. Or how about after a drink? Because I'm super fluent <laughs> Spanish after I drink. I am the most fluent I have ever been after like two, two shots of tequila. I could talk to anybody. <laughs> after, after, after a half shot of tequila, I'll be under the table. So you don't speak anything. <laughs> So it's like, so when you're surrounded by that language, that part of your brain sort of wakes up too. Yeah, yeah, it does absolutely. Like, like, like if I am in the United States, uh, the only person who speaks Chinese too regularly is my mother. She lives, she lives in the same city as me, so we talk every day and we see each other fairly often. So I do speak Chinese on a regular basis, but it's like I can, I cannot speak well. Like mm -hmm. I cannot use like our idiomatic uh, usages. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking on a fairly basic level. Right. But, but when, I, when I go back to China, all of a sudden I'm, I'm speaking like an educated person. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. So when you are writing and you're writing in English and you're thinking in English, um, one of the things that I love about your books, and I apologize in advance for a, you know, putting you on the spot by giving you a compliment because that's always really awkward, um, that's okay, as long as I don't have to look at you. No, you don't. No, no video. Um, one of the things I really love about your books is that when I read them, I feel like I'm being reintroduced to English, which is my first language, because you have a way of phrasing things and building images that is really unique. And I've always wondered, does that come out of the way in which English and Chinese are different from, an from one another? Are you sort of blending idioms when that happens? Or is that just your style and it's awesome and it has nothing to do with bilingual? Okay, it's, 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 I think it's 10% my Chinese background in the sense that sometimes I will actually borrow a very hackneyed phrase, <laughs> you know, from Chinese, which, which is like, you know, like you would say raining cats and dog here, the equivalent. Of, right, of course. Uh, Some but strange then, and, idiom. And translated directly into English. And, and that will be, 
you have not heard it before. <laughs> no, no, we sure haven't. That doesn't happen a whole lot, though, because uh, you know, there, there, each culture only has so many stock phrases for you to borrow from. It's true. Um, uh, the majority part is because I happen to be, um, I write blind in the sense that I am not a visual person. When I write, I can't see anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, like a, it's like a cartoon panel. Uh, if you can see what's in my head, it's like a cartoon panel and uh, just two stick figures with speech bubbles above their heads. <laughs> that will not do. No. So, so I have to do something about it. So I write until I can see myself what, what is it I'm describing. So, so the illustrated a, versions of your books are going to be really interesting. <laughs> Well, I'm still holding out hope. Uh, somebody should buy my uh, YA and turn it into a comic strip. <laughs> uh, that would be pretty um, amazing. So yeah, so so it's it's mainly to compensate for uh for this uh for, for my own difficulties. Yeah. Because I can't see what I'm writing, uh, and and, and like my brain is completely blank. So so then it has to, uh, so I have to write until I can see myself what I'm doing. Right. Okay. This is this is what the house looked like. This is what the landscape looked like, and this is what uh, you know these people. Um, although, no matter how I describe people, I still don't don't have a face for them in, in my head. They're just like wow. That's really yeah. interesting. So you just hear or or see the dialogue. You're you're focused on what they right, say to right. each other. Right. Right. Yeah. I've always said I should be a, a a a screenwriter because then you know you don't have to describe anything. <laughs> they they are in a room. Him. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it, it was quite a shock to me. Um, I love reading um, uh, Jenny Cruzy's blog. Mm-hmm. I think I must have been reading her blog for however long she's had her blog. Um, but but whenever she talks about writing, she's like speaking Greek to me. <laughs> like our process are like the opposite end of the um, spectrum because she's all about uh, doing like the collage Yes. You know, she visualizes her book as a collage. And yes. I'm like, I, I wouldn't know. If you give me a magazine, I wouldn't know uh, what uh, anybody look, who, who looks like my hero and heroine. I wouldn't know what their house looked like. I, <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe after I finish writing the book, I might be able to do the collage. But definitely not before it. You know, even, even my own book, I wouldn't know where to tell you where act one you know, begins and ends or you know, where any of the turning points are. <laughs> So like every writer have a different process. And for me, that's just, um, yeah. So to, to get back to your very wonderful compliment, that's, that's the reason it's not, it's not, it's a little bit boring from Chinese and a lot just writing to, um, make sure I can see what I'm, what, what a book, how, how it would read to the reader. That's very cool. In my very limited experience writing fiction, I am also a dialogue person. Like I hear people talking and I write it down, which sounds completely freaky unless you're talking to another writer and then they're like, oh yeah, absolutely. That's what happens. So I hear voices that that's totally normal. <laughs> no, I, I am, I am a dialogue reader and I'm a dialogue writer. When I do write, it's, I have to fill in like, oh, I gotta tell people where they are and you know, maybe where's the sun and maybe there's a tree. I don't know. Let's, let's just go back to the park talking because I'm so nosy. I love listening to people talking. I love people listening to people's conversations. So my favorite part of a book is, is like, if I see a long paragraph of exposition, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dialogue. Let's go read that now. <laughs> I'm horrible. Yeah, and, uh, and, uh, and the thing is, I, that's how I write. I, I write a ton of dialogues uh, and just and action and dialogue. The, the problem for me with writing only action and dialogue is for after a while, I lose what the character might be thinking. Right. Yeah. And in a romance, that's very, very important. Yes, especially when what they're thinking and what they're saying are two totally different things. Uh, yes, exactly. Annoying characters. Yes. So could you tell, tell me a little bit about your YA series, the, the fantasy series? Because I know there are many, many podcast listeners who are big fans of fantasy and fantasy YA. And this series, this trilogy is really cool. I like to think so uh, because uh, it's, uh, it's what I call a uh, reverse Harry Potter uh, with cross-dressing. As you do. As you do. As you do. Uh, so uh, it's, not a, it's not a Lord of the Rings kind of uh, um, high fantasy. It's, it's like a, it's one girl and a boy, mm-hmm. and they are both going to a muggle school. They're going to a muggle boarding school for boys. And this is a historical. So it's actually set in the 1880s. 
And the only good schools worth going to were boarding schools for boys back then. So they were actually at Eton College, and she is cross-dressing. And, and so instead of instead of instead of being instead of like unlike Harry Potter, where they are at a mag- magical school and they are plotting the downfall of the Dark Lord, you know, my my kids are at a Muggle school plotting the downfall of the Dark Lord. You know that 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 that's generally something you can squeeze in with your boarding school curriculum. Right. Right. Yes. So I mean, she... in, in fact, in fact, any boarding school that does not allow you to squeeze in that. It's not a school worth going to. Oh, well, I mean, why even bother going to go- boarding school if you can't, like, plot over several books to kill some big bad thing? Yeah, like, What's yeah. the point of even going? That's the whole point of being, like, living right next to each other all the time. Forced proximity, no parents, killing the big bad. Duh. Yes. It's the best thing ever. So the the heroine of this one, it has has something in common with Harry Potter in that she's, you know, she's predicted or prophesied to be the most powerful Who's going to do massive things? Right. And she's like, and, yeah, no. <laughs> How about not is, at all? And the thing is, minor, minor spoiler, I will be playing with that trope in later books. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's, it's, she's, it, it's only like for book one that she's the chosen one. And uh, because the chosen one is such a tired trope. Yes. You know? I mean, no, it's, it's, it's not always tired if when you do it well. Like, I think The Matrix was... You know, well, the first book, first first movie at least was awesome in how they uh, how they play with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at some point you go race like, how the heck do people know? What if they made a mistake? Yeah. What if what if what if she's not? What if she's yeah, like what you if know? Yeah. What if instead of like being the most powerful, she's really good at you know magically eradicating dust? Yes. Yes. So um, so yeah, it it, it 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 kind of like book two would turn that chosen one trope on its head. And book three, we'll see how everything tied together. The whole trilogy is out. It's out, yeah. What? It's out and bingeable, yeah. Oh, bingeable is good. Bingeable's very good. Bingeable is awesome. Who <laughs> wants to wait? My God. So this is for like older YA. This is like uh, like grade eight and up. Uh, that's what it says on the spine. But I think, I think, like... Advanced readers at a younger age will have no problem with it. Is there a lot of I, sexy I, times or is it just intense kissing? It's it's very, very clean. Ah, good. But, okay. but there are dick jokes that will fly over the little one's head. That's all right. They're <laughs> meant to. Then then they can come back and discover how funny it was. It, it's it's it, it, more than one reader have had that experience reading a second time going, holy smoke. How come I, I, in my innocence way back when, did not notice that this, you know, that when they're talking about his wand, they're actually talking about something else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, if you go back and read Shakespeare, he's like 96% dick jokes. Oh my God. My, uh, my kid had to, uh, do Shakespeare in, uh, in his ninth grade. Yeah. Last year was ninth grade. His ninth grade class, uh, last year. And uh, because he is not a strong reader, so I sat down with him and we read the annotated version. Right. And I was like, was it Mercutio? Who, who, who was the who was the rival dude? Who was the dude that got killed? Mercutio, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Every time he opened his mouth, dick jokes. He talked about nothing but sex and dick jokes. It's just like nothing but like. <laughs> yeah, talk, talk about, you know, Shakespeare was probably the original, you know, purple, uh-huh. purple language dude who used everything except, you know. <laughs> we hid all the dick jokes. Ha <laughs> yes. fun. And I was like, my God, this, 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 like, you know what? They only allow ninth graders to read this because the ninth graders aren't actually reading it. Yes, they're not going to you know, catch they, all they, the dick jokes. They're reading, they're reading the, the spark notes or whatever, and they're not understanding that they are, like, missing, like, a massive ton of sexual references <laughs> sometimes are not even sexual references sometimes they're like like <laughs> hitting you over the head with a dildo that kind of obvious <laughs> so what are you working on right now right now i'm working on book two of uh the uh lady sherlock um lady sherlock mysteries uh it's due in like six weeks and i have one third of a book da 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 well, I mean, that's better than zero thirds of a book. 
Yes. Do you have them all plotted out? Like, do you have it plotted out over a certain number of books or do you have like major elements of the story that you're going to see where they fit? Uh, no. At any point when I'm writing, I can only see about two or three scenes ahead. And ah, so you really do write without any, without any foresight. I, I wouldn't say completely that way uh, because sometimes I know what's going to happen at the end. I see. You're right. I just, I just don't know how to get there. In, in the <laughs> so I describe it as like, I'm not flying in the mist. Right. Uh, like I, I am not a panther panther, uh, but I am, my process is more like I can see the, the castle on the hill. Right. But, but between me and the castle, there's like, you know, this huge jungle and alligator infested rivers and whatever. So, <laughs> and how to make my way to, from where I'm standing to that castle on the hill. That's, that's my problem. That'll take a little while. Yes. Yes. That so, will like, you know, a lot of, a uh, lot of hacking at thickets and sometimes going the wrong way and stuff like that. It's not a complete unknown. It's just a uh, lar large unknown. It's just a large unknown. You know where you're going. You kind of have <laughs> I a destination. I know where I would like to end up. I just don't know how to get there <laughs> until I get there. Uh -huh. Which makes it interesting because uh, it gives me time to think along the way. And uh, it, gives me, uh, it gives me time to reject the very obvious things. Yes. Yeah. So like, like the twists. Uh, the good thing about writing a book is writing a book is, is, is like working with clay. Yes. Um, nobody needs to know what it looked like while you were in the process of doing it. They only need to see the final product. So I can always go back and add foreshadowing, add layers, add thread. Right. Once I realize what the book needs, it doesn't need to start out right. It can fall into rightness as it progresses. And you can go back once you once you can see the whole picture of the book, like you can see the entirety, you know where to put those little moments to add layers. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, for me, that's 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 how I go. I am in awe of those who can write detailed outlines. I try. I have tried several times and my final product will always end up looking nothing like the detailed outline. So then I'm like, why do I bother? Yeah. <laughs> So my one question that I always ask every interview is what are you reading that you recommend or what books are you reading that you would love to tell people about? Uh, I am about to start uh, A Curious Beginning by uh, Deanna Rayburn. Uh, so I am very much looking forward to it. And let's see, what, what books am I reading now? That uh, One book I like is a nonfiction book called Etymologicon. Oh, and uh, it's all about how words came about and uh, and it talks about etymology in a really funny and sometimes very profane way. Uh, <laughs> so it's like I feel like we right up the alley of, you know, smart bitches, readers and listeners. Um, uh, I'm for, buying example, that. for example, um, for example, I recently went to a party uh, and by the time we were about to leave, because we still have, you know, kids who are at home, we don't want to leave them too long. Yep. Uh, by the time we are about to leave, the, uh, the non-kids people were just about to get going yep. on a round of games. And uh, one person was saying like, okay, we should play for nuts because there happened to be a bowl of nuts sitting on the table. Right. So we should play for nuts. And so the person, as he spoke, pulled the whole bowl of nuts toward himself. And everybody was like, oh, hey, look at him. He has all the nuts, you know. And somebody was saying that, hey, you have more nuts than you need. And I was like, hey, I was reading this book that <laughs> actually about words. And I just learned a word that means having more nuts than you need. <laughs> and I will go ahead and educate the smart bitches readers. Okay, I am and, so excited by this. Please this tell word, me this, this word. Is, this is like so many times you come across an interesting word, it's hard to remember. No, absolutely. Yeah, as soon as you finish reading about it, you forget about it. Um, and But this one is so easy to remember. It's polyorchidic. Orchid, like an orchid, like that beautiful flower orchid. Right. You put poly in front of it, you know, I-C or I-S-M after it. 
and it means having more nuts than you need. Polyorchidic. Polyorchidic, yes. Having like three or more testicles, yes. That's amazing. Yes. My entire and, day and, is so and, made. And, 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 and you too can... And you know. You too can bring a party to its feet. <laughs> And you know that once you know a word like this, you end up with reason to to use it. It's like the road arrives before you. You know the word. Now the opportunity right. will come. The opportunity will arise. Okay, and you know, given amazing. that you are romance readers, of course. Oh. There will be opportunities to There will absolutely be opportunities to use this word. Oh my gosh, I am so delighted. Right. So so and and this being our current age, somebody immediately whip out the phone and said, Oh my God, that is true. <laughs> yes, you've been fact-checked like, and you survived. Like making up shit on the spot. Okay, that is hilarious. So are you still reading this book? Is it all I'm as good as Polyokidic? It's like very dense with information. So I only read like a couple page a, a night. Um, and if folks are looking for a romance recommendation, I recently read is it the the anatomical shape of the heart yes the anatomical shape of a heart by jen bennett yes yes which recently won the uh ya um ya reader i believe right yes yes i enjoyed a lot it's such a cute story yeah that's awesome so when you're writing do you have time to read a lot or do you have to sort of put reading aside and uh no, actually, actually, one period when I read the most books recently was when I was on like a hair on fire deadline. Um, but I am, um, my brain kind of turns into a pumpkin uh, promptly every night at 10. So, <laughs> so even on hair on fire deadlines, there's only like so much um, I can do after that time. So I remember there was like a whole month when I would like every night I would unwind by reading an old Agatha Christie book. Because oh, I just realized, lovely. like my library, my library had a lot of them online, and I could just like click, you know, click, click. yeah, click, click, borrow one every night and and and, and read it, uh, and and so yeah, uh, reading and writing, I, I yeah, I, I, I was surprised to learn that a lot of writers they cannot read when they are writing uh, because they're afraid what what they're reading might bleed into what they're writing, and I'm like, that's what I live for, for what I read to bleed into what I write. Especially if you're reading Agatha Christie and you're writing mystery, you want that yeah. complexity and that uh, sort of feeling of disequilibrium and uncertainty in every scene. And and I always, um, I think I feel enough confidence in in my own voice, in my own storytelling, in that whatever I pick up by the time it goes through the filter mm -hmm. of how I see things and how I write, it will come out to be my own thing rather than, you know, rather than an exact copy of what they did. Yes. Because like, um, for example, I would tell um, Meredith Duran, mm -hmm. who is a tremendous writer, one of the, probably the best pro stylist of our generation uh, of romance writers. Um, and uh, she can write a heart-wrenching scene like nobody's business. So oh God, yes, this is when, true. When, when, uh, her debut book is called The Duke of Shadows. And there's a scene in it called the globe scene. The globe scene when, mm -hmm. uh, for, 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 for readers who might not have read the book, although, you know, that you should stop this right now and go read it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's set during the uh, Great Mutiny uh, of, uh, in British India, like the 1850s. Yes. And it's a story of these two people who met right before the Great Mutiny and then got separated and uh, terrible things happened to the woman. And then they met again a few years later in London yes. and um, and one time they, they were finally alone in a room and the room had a globe and she was I think she was recounting where he had been or he was recounting where he had gone to find her mm -hmm. basically they were in all the same places but they just had missed each other yes. and it was like it was like gut-wrenching and uh, so when I was writing uh, Not Quite a Husband uh, I, I went to read that scene because I told her I want to write my own version of the globe scene. I want to write my own version of a, a recounting of the past. Yes. Where it's, you know, you can see how people were trying to find their way to each other, but was, they just kind of missed each other left and right. And, uh, 
And that turned out to be a very good scene. And I think, I can't remember whether Meredith came and even asked me, but which scene was it? Which was the one that you based on my glove scene? <laughs> because, because by the time I was done with it, it, it resembled the globe scene, not at all. Um, but, you know, except in spirit. And you were after the emotional resonance. I was the after the emotional resonance. Yeah. So, so I, I am never worried that uh, reading a good book will bleed. I'm like, yes, bleed more into my book. Come on. You know, you also have the awareness of what words are yours. I do. I have it so much. In fact, that sometimes I will go and, you know, do a search on my own uh, manuscript and go, am I, am I plagiarizing myself? Have I used this metaphor? Have I used this description before? You know, so, uh, yeah, so, so I am quite aware. Uh, I am, I don't believe people who say they accidentally, you know, regurgitate a whole paragraph of somebody else's words. No, <laughs> I cannot even, if I, you know, back in the bad old days when you like sometimes lose a paragraph because your computer shut down or something before your computer was smart enough to save your words instantly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I would never be able to, to like re regurgitate my own paragraph from memory, let alone somebody else's. No, only like a, like a, like a word or a phrase is going to make you go, Oh, wait, wait, wait. No, no. I've said right. that. Yeah. I know which words are mine. <laughs> yes. Which, which is fascinating to me because I will bump into review quotes that are attributed to the site and I'll be like, Oh, I wonder which one of my reviewers wrote that. Cause it wasn't me. No, no, it was me. <laughs> I don't recognize my own writing. It's very, very strange. Past Sarah's writing is very strange to present Sarah. Um, I, I recognize, I do recognize my writing, uh, but I will tell you what I do not recognize. Uh, sometime, uh, there, there, there was a couple of years when I was writing both romance and young adult fantasy. So it would be just one deadline after another. Um, that sounds I, really fun. It, it was in a way. And, and the thing is, I write, uh, I require many drafts to get the book right. So I will finish one draft and hand it off to whichever edit, editor is due to, and then go back to working something else. Uh, and then, and then when the, so when the, when this draft come back with the comments and I go back to reading it, I'll be like, man, I don't even remember writing this. <laughs> <laughs> that was me. That, are you sure? Yeah. yeah. Are, are I don't remember sure? writing this, but Hey, it's sure not that bad. It served, served, served the purpose. So, you know, <laughs> It's like, it's like finding money, finding money in your couch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's my winter coat with a $20 like, bill in the pocket. Uh, I, I don't know where this came from, but I can use it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that is all for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed that. I want to thank Sherry Thomas for hanging out and chatting with me. If you are curious about any of the books we talked about, and oh, there were a lot, you can find them at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. The most recent episode will always be at the top, but in case you're looking, which one is this? This is episode number 216, and there's a lot of books we talked about. I have some compliments to give and a special greeting. So, first of all, get ready. Suzanne, I have a message for you. I understand your birthday is soon, and a certain person, aka your husband, would like you to know that he thinks you are passionate and engaging, and you make his entire life better. Happy 30th birthday. Now, if you're wondering what, who, wait, Suzanne and Matt were in a prior episode. They were part of our couple's discussion of romance in episode number 210. Yep, 210. Look at me with numbers. I never remember numbers. It is Suzanne's birthday, and Matt really wanted to have her get a surprise compliment. So happy birthday. Hope your birthday is so totally awesome. And trust me, your 30s are pretty freaking fabulous. I am in the next decade and it's just as awesome. So happy birthday. And additional compliments, here we go. I love this part. Georgina S, all of the owls have taken a survey and you are wiser than all of them combined. I don't think you can turn your head nearly 360 degrees though, but if you can, that's also cool. Teresa H, any top five list or top 10 or top 100 or top however many, no matter the topic, has you on it at the top. And to Stacy B, you are better than bacon and chocolate and cookies and really good blankets. And above all, you are better than free Wi-Fi. 
And now if you're wondering what is happening here, you can have a look at our podcast Patreon at patreon.com slash smartbitches. For different pledges beginning at $1 a month, you can support the show, help me commission transcripts, and at some levels, receive a genuine, completely random, very goofy compliment from yours truly. Have a look at patreon.com slash smartpitches, and if you've pledged to support the show, thank you. But most of all, if you are listening and tuning in every week, thank you for that too, because you're awesome. Our transcript this week is sponsored by Kensington, publishers of Highland Chieftain by Hannah Howell. USA Today and New York Times best-selling author Hannah Howell delivers a new entry into her epic and sweeping medieval Murray family saga that will delight longtime fans and readers who are craving some strong, protective Scottish warriors and feisty leading ladies in a way that only Hannah Howell can deliver. With her signature sweeping prose and unforgettable characters, Howell will whisk you away to the castle-dotted hills and deep lochs, which is exactly where Bethock Matheson finds Sir Callum Macmillan on the verge of drowning. So she does what every steadfast lass would do, and she rescues him. You can give in to your kilty pleasures this fall and warm up under your favorite tartan blanket with Highland Chieftain. The Scottish Highlands are beckoning you. Highland Chieftain by Hannah Howell is on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. And speaking of where books are sold, we have our own iBooks page, and it's totally cool. If you'd like to check it out, it's at iTunes.com slash DBSA. I know it's the old name of the podcast. Things change. And yet, despite not being allowed to name anything, I still name things. But either way, if you go to iTunes.com slash DBSA, you'll see the most recent episodes and the books that we talk about. And if you're an iBook shopper, this makes the shopping part way easier. And like I said, our mission at Smart Bitches is to connect romance readers with one another and with the books they want to read and to make me feel less lonely about my own poor impulse control when it comes to book buying. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and you can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is a band called Sketch. This track is Bulgarian Shed from their album Shed Life. There's, there's a lot of shed on this album, but it's all good. You can find this on Amazon or iTunes or wherever you like to buy your most excellent music. I will have links in the podcast entry for this episode, not only to the books, but to the speech from Sherry's uh, appearance as a keynote at RWA in 2016. I will have links to the different entries she's mentioned, including the NPR Top 100, which she and I were both responsible for compiling. So if you really hated it, it's all our fault. You can yell at us. And as of course, I will always have links to websites and Twitter and Facebook so you can find all of these fine people that I interview. Interviews are so much fun, you have no idea. But if you would like to ask me a question, or you would like to suggest something, or you have a response, or you want to tell me about the book that made you a romance reader, or you just want to tell me something completely random, I am here for that. You can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave a voicemail at 1-201-371-3272. You are all very interesting and cool, and I love hearing from you, so thank you for any contact, except for the one where you yelled out your window, because I probably didn't hear that one over the dogs barking. And that is all for this episode. On behalf of Sherry Thomas and everyone here and myself, we wish you the very best of reading. Have an excellent weekend. 